Hello, my name is Dawson McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're taking it easy. You might even say we're just gonna, you know, improv it. Because we're talking about mumblecore. We're gonna be lazy. <laughs> we're not gonna care about craft at all. Now, you know, plot doesn't matter. Because what we're talking about is real life, man. Just the little moments. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. Those poetic little moments. <laughs> so, mumblecore for people... Boobs, bush, <laughs> cocks... Oh, I like In your face. Yeah, right. Just in 3D. In the mid-2000s, the independent film landscape is changing. Digital technology is emerging. The marketplace is getting flooded. Traditional uh, modes of distribution are starting to implode. New modes are starting to emerge. Steven Soderbergh's like, I'm going to shoot a film with non-actors called Bubble and release it day and date in theaters and on DVD. And certain filmmakers... Uh, they were not really filmmakers yet, and they may not even be filmmakers now. But, but oh, whoa, what a hot burn! But they had access to this uh, off-the-rack consumer-grade equipment, and you know they they did a Kevin Smith, and they mm. said, "Why don't we make a movie in where we are right now?" Ooh, I like this idea. Did it give us kind of insightful, uh, daring, and charismatic works of art? No, but it, it may have it may have led to those things. Yes, which I think is what's interesting about Mumblecore. Uh, a lot of these movies were shot sort of in and around the apartments of hipsters Ugh, and mattresses uh, on the floor. I've been there, <laughs> uh, Brooklyn, Chicago, Austin, wherever artists gather mm-hmm. between jobs. Yeah, between <laughs> jobs. Many of them just having graduated, and many of these films documented that particular post-collegial atmosphere where uh, identities are not fully formed yet. You're not quite sure what your career is going to be. There aren't that many opportunities. Well, there are some opportunities. You are living on a trust fund, after all. <laughs> oh, tsh, double burn. You, you do somehow have an apartment in Williamsburg. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And your mattress is on the floor, probably because, damn, man, why buy a frame, right? Yeah. Get that futon out, pull it out when it breaks. Mattress goes on the floor. But, you know, you may not even be dating very seriously right now. You know, you're kind of... Yeah, there's something better out there. Why settle down now? You're kind of jumping between uh, sexually available people. You're white? You're white. (laughs) Yep. You're probably male. Although there's probably also a nude woman in there somewhere. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So I will say that uh, when these movies were emerging, or at least when I got around to them, I was watching them with interest. I mean, I guess the spiritual father of this movement, if it is a movement, is Joe Swanberg, Mm -hmm. the most prolific guy who made these films. Well, technically, it was Andrew uh, Bojalski who made the first mumblecore film, even though that it is shot on film, not digital video, called Funny Ha Ha in And he made most of his films on film. He did. Or he used, like, weird uh, cameras like he did on his later on computer chess. Mm-hmm. And with that film kind of ushered in this wave of, it feels kind of improvised, it's off the cuff... Going back to people like Claude Chabrol and his kind of talky dramas. John Cassavetes. Yeah, John Cassavetes, which was had that improvised feel. Who, I mean, as recently as a couple years ago, I found out on the Mark Maron podcast, Joe Swanberg had not actually seen any of John Cassavetes' movies. 
That does not surprise me. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. Anyway. Why do I need to look at other art, man, when it's just really my life that influences it? (laughs) So I think, though, the outlines of what Mumblecore is, it's kind of what defined it. This kind of lazy, laissez-faire attitude. No plots can be improvised, shot on, most often than not, consumer-grade digital video. And uh, especially Joe Swanberg, he would actually write them with his cast and crew as they were going on and kind of craft a film around the time that they spent. But right... Uh, even though that's what it says in the credits, is not entirely accurate. No. Since they are Im- improvisatory exercises. Mm-hmm. Probably burned thousands of pixels, uh, <laughs> shooting endless amounts you of footage. You can just go back over the tape and re-record it, man. Yeah. I don't know why I'm making Joe Swanberg sound like a he, surfer dude or something. Because he seems like he seems like a hippie. Yeah, kind yeah, of. Just come into my loft and you know, let's. Uh, if something happens, just take I your clothes know. off. You know, who knows? So why don't we talk about Joe Swanberg's film, Hannah Takes the Stairs, that was made in two. 2007 first the quintessential mumblecore film when people say mumblecore it's like hannah takes the stairs that's the one that they think of and it has eight credited writers on it Mm -hmm. who are the eight actors i guess it's also like an all-star of mumblecore players as well you've got andrew bajalski you've got mark duplass you've got kent osborne the charisma dynamo (laughs) and you've got <laughs> You've got easily the biggest star that the Mumblecore movement gave us, Greta Gerwig, mm-hmm. as the titular Hannah. I mean, that would happen later. At this point in time, she's, I think she was dating Joe Swanberg uh, around she? this period. Yeah, because there's a movie that they made later on. I don't remember the exact title. Uh, Nights and Weekends. Yeah, and that is kind of documenting them breaking up okay. as a movie. And so Hannah Takes the Stairs is Hannah's journey as she kind of bounces around all these... <laughs> sexual dynamos in her life yeah include mark duplass kent osborne from uncle kent did you see uncle kent? <laughs> i've never seen uncle or kent no sequel <laughs> uncle kent too the yeah. tim and eric like parody of the mumblecore movement yeah yeah I, I, i've seen both of those i saw a lot of these movies <laughs> really and yeah. but why like why did you keep going to see them did it feel important at the time like someone was speaking to you i was interested in them because they were these attempts to create something that i guess was reflective of that post-collegiate life that I was sort of in. I can see somebody that age watching those films and going like, that's me. I'm seeing myself up on the big screen in a way that I could have done. But watching these films now, I'm like, these are selfish, narcissistic people that like, I can understand maybe that's how I was at that age. Mm-hmm. What is it giving me to see that now? And the possibilities that they represented mm-hmm. were, were exciting. The yeah. fact that something Anybody like this, can make a movie. This could get made and it could get distributed. And here it is on Netflix and I'm watching it. Here's the problem with like Mumblecore films is that people will only accept people making almost no effort <laughs> or you have money to make a real movie. Because <laughs> if they had tried to do something in the middle, it would have probably just been tossed aside and ignored. But the idea that they're like John Cassavetti using it with like all this improv and it feels immediate i think that's what people reacted to so yeah hannah takes the stairs was one of those ones that i saw back in the day and didn't really like then Mm -hmm. and i still don't like it and (laughs) why well uh so the plot is yeah hannah has just graduated uh bouncing around she breaks up from mark duplass uh, she's torn between the affections of these other two. Uh, that That's the plot. <laughs> the other two losers. <laughs> it doesn't look good. No, that doesn't really bother me. Ugh, I hated looking at really? it. Really? I just didn't like the gray, dingy palette. I've already passed the uh, chasm of finding digital video nostalgic in some way. You're not there yet, but you'll get there soon. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I didn't like these characters. No. 
Although I did like Greta Gerwig. Yeah. I think she really like you, you watch her in this movie. And it's like, well, no wonder this was the one who broke out because she has so much more life than any of these other people. And I mean, you know, also the movie invites us to find her attractive. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and, like it's a Joe Swanberg fucking movie. OK, it's got a real male gaze. To I it. was going to say that, like. The biggest issue I have with the film is that I don't think it's aware that, like, this woman, while at the center, is under all of these men Uh who are, like, she's making decisions to leave them or go with somebody else. But, like, they're always in power, whether it be at her job, where her two, like, romantic prospects are technically her bosses because she's Uh working as an intern. Or the fact that, like, these people are not interesting in the slightest. I don't want to hang out with these people. I don't find them compelling in any way. Like, if I was at a party, I'd be like, well, I'm going to leave because this is boring. (laughs) So the Mumblecore movies that I like the best, and I'm not even like, you know, Mumblecore is one of those labels like Mm -hmm. hipster. Yeah. You don't want to you don't actually want to call yourself. Well, like Joe Swanberg, when um, the movement was being called that and it was coined by it's been given credit to Andrew Wojcicki, but it was actually his sound designer, I think, during an interview that made like made Mm -hmm. a joke about it. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of stuck. And Joe Swanberg the kind of things that it represents. He's like, no, I don't want this to be the label that we're defined by because it does mean kind of like lazy, not trying. And that's not what we're making. But the ones that I like the best that are of this movement or were made possible by it are the ones that don't actually aim for this kind of, this level of grinding naturalism. Because honestly, it's not like Hannah Takes the Stairs is actually that naturalistic. It's boring and it's raw. It's actually cut like really fast. Like it's a bunch of like little moments that never build to anything major. and it's also, They're annoying. Yeah. And, it, and it's also kind of like twee and cloying. Mm. It, it, oh, you know, know I'm kind of like speaking my mind, but I'm not like really speaking my mind. And uh, yeah. sure, whatever. And like, I don't know, if you're going to be twee, why not? Why not just be Wes Anderson? Mm-hmm. It's more fun. <laughs> well, how do you compare something like Hannah Take the Stairs to Funny Ha Ha that does all of that stuff, I think, but in a more charming way and in a more naturalistic way? Yeah. OK, so Funny Ha Ha, which is the, I guess, first Mumblecore movie. Yeah, it came out in 2002. Uh, I did like Funny Ha Ha, and it's a movie that's made almost entirely of awkward conversations, <laughs> yep. like comically awkward conversations. It's a comedy of manners. Yeah. It's also a post-collegiate mm-hmm. young woman who's uh, and her directionless life and her romantic travails. But the conversations are taken to almost like a surreal level of awkwardness. Uh, you know the scenes where where somebody's asking her out mm. uh i don't think that there's uh an imposition of like ah you know we just caught this off the cuff in funny haha mm. like it feels different andrew bajowski like knows what he's doing and he wants to ratchet up yeah. like the tension in the comedy as high as he can which is something that joe swanberg doesn't really do in his movies well there's a very difficult balance of like some of these movies benefit from the authenticity of of seeming made you know, really cheap mm-hmm. in, in natural locations with non-actors. But, okay, something like the the color wheel, or also, frankly, clerks. Like, there's a funny juxtaposition between the uh, mundane, natural setting and the heightened quality of the dialogue. Well, I don't want to, like, uh, jump right to, like, the mumblecore filmmakers that nobody usually talks when you talk about mumblecore, but something like Daddy Longlegs from 2009, mm. the Safdie brothers, like, they're taking that style to the best extreme. Like, if you haven't seen Daddy Longlegs, it's a movie about, like, a father who's a piece of shit. And it does have that off-the-cuff kind of, like, we caught this moment as it was happening. It was supposedly, like, improv a lot. 
but it feels genuine and it feels like they kind of molded this mm. until they had the best version of it. And that character in that movie is such a huge mm. asshole, but you enjoy watching it because you want to know where the story is going. Yeah, it, it's funny and there's there's a sense of propulsion to it. Yeah, and it's the same thing with something like Heaven Knows What, mm. where it's like you're, you're catching these people almost as if you're not supposed to be seeing them. And while it's not technically dramatically billing to this big moment in the way that you usually expect it is constructed in a way that you don't see in Joe Swanberg's films. And I'm sure that people who are massive fans of his films, are they still out there? I mean, there are so many of them that some of them are better than others. Yeah, but, but I feel like they don't get discussed very often. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's, he, I mean, he's still very prolific, but I know we, we mentioned that he's directed some episodes of Loving. Yeah, uh, it feels like Joe Swanberg at this point, it's more like I'm hanging out with my Hollywood friends. Like, that's what all his movies <laughs> feel like. Like, uh, Drinking Buddies, or like, oh. um, it's not Playing With Fire or Digging For Fire. I, I think I know what you're talking about. He There's did, also Happy Christmas. So yeah, what was and he that did one? a Netflix film as well. Mm-hmm. And it all it always features the same kind of actors, and they just you know people like Olivia Wilde and mm. Anna Kendrick kind of slumming it and doing <laughs> yeah, exactly. doing acting exercises. We're just kind of improving it, and they can just like package that to an audience that doesn't know any better oh, and so just boring. toss it off. Boring. There's not that much for us to say about Joe Swanberg because I think our opinions of his work is fairly clear. Hey, hey, I have one more thing to say. Did you ever see Kissing on the Mouth? No, I did not. Oh, man. Well, that's the movie where he jerks off. <laughs> right on camera? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do like it when films show that kind of male nudity. Uh. But I remember when I went to a film festival and Joe Swanberg was like at the top of his game and he was presenting a film that still has not been released. <laughs> do you remember when he... I'm sure he has hard drives full of them. <laughs> do you remember when he um, tried to set up like a subscription package to his movies that you would pay like $100 a year and you'd get like one movie every three months or something like that. You know, that's interesting because I could just once every three months pay like $3.99 for an iTunes rental of a director that I like. (laughs) But I do like this idea that Joe Swanberg, like he wanted to create his own little film industry that people could pay him directly in a time before Patreon and he didn't need all these investors or all this stuff and he could tell the stories that he wants to tell and the money goes directly to him to continue doing that. That's an idea that, like, I find really awesome. Mm-hmm. It just I don't really like the movies that much. And I, I do find his way of working kind of interesting, mm. like, in theory. Yes, I do, too. <laughs> I just love that it just grown to kind of, like, slumming it with his, like, <laughs> like you said, like, Anna Kendrick and stuff like that. Yeah. Where copies of Drinking Buddies on Blu-ray will haunt every bargain bin <laughs> as far as the eye can see. Imagine owning that. <laughs> do uh, you look own at my shelf? <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> uh, there's one Mumblecore film that we didn't talk about and that we both watched, which was Hump Day. Yeah, Lynn, directed by Lynn Shelton and also starring uh, one of the leading lights of the Mumblecore movement, director, actor, Mark Duplass. Hey, don't forget one of the leading lights of the Blair Witch Project, Joshua Leonard, oh, who plays I the other role. I didn't realize that's Also the villain in... Oh, Unsane. Unsane, yes. Ah, very interesting. <laughs> and I think that like when I look at something like Hump Day, which is a story of two friends that were best friends when they were young and Joshua Leonard is kind of like um, a guy about town I assume he has a trust fund of some kind kind of a cool bohemian he's got a girlfriend and she's got a girlfriend and you know just a libertine life and uh, Mark Duplass is the button down guy who they want he and his wife own a house and they're gonna have kids at some point and these two pals get together get drunk 
and they make a joke about entering a porn film festival by making a movie where they have sex with each other. So it's kind of like Old Joy. <laughs> Is that what happened at the end of Old Joy? Well, no, but you know. It's implied, of course. <laughs> the Kelly Reinhardt movie. Certainly a lot of homoeroticism, yes. And I think that like what I like about this movie is, you know, other than the Joe Swanberg film, we keep just raking Joe Swanberg over the coals. Uh-huh. Is that like it's actually about something? Yes. There's like an idea there and that they're using this style to kind of approach this idea from multiple different perspectives without going all out and saying like, this is what it's about. So I avoided hump day for many years because the premise just sounded lame to me. <laughs> and the cover is like both of them shirtless, like back to back like this. I thought, oh, this is going to be like kind of a no homo, like yeah. gay panic thing. I didn't realize it was by Lynn Shelton. I thought it was a Mark Duplass directed mm. film. I didn't realize it was by Lynn Shelton. Uh, and I think, you know, perhaps a female director brings um, a different angle on this. Like, the joke is not, oh my god, I can't believe they're going to have sex. I, that is never the, really but, the joke of the movie. Yeah, it, it, it's about, okay, the, there's this one guy who feels frightened by this life of domesticity that he's entering. There's this other guy who's never completed anything in his life. Mm-hmm. And because having sex with each other is the thing they really don't want to do, it becomes symbolic of so much. But it's also very stupid. It's so stupid. And everybody tells them. And they're like, well, I, I have, have to, to do this. But, like, But they, they don't know why they have to do this. Yeah. And, and it all builds up to this final... I don't no know, spoilers. 15-minute scene. I, no spoilers. Where, mm. where they, they it finally comes time to make this film, which is very funny. Yes, it's very funny. Yeah. And I think that's why Hump Day worked for me as opposed to something like Hannah Takes the Stairs, which is... Not funny. (laughs) (laughs) Is that like, not only is it about something, it's humorous. These people are kind of empathetic in a way that the people in the Joe Swanberg films are not. And like, I look at those Joe Swanberg films and all I could think about was like, I don't want to go hang with myself when I was in my 20s. Yeah. So lame. I also, okay, getting back to Joe Swanberg. Yeah. I kind of resent their like aspirations towards universality. Do you think they have that? I do. I kind of do. But it can't be because it's their particular perspective. I know. But like, why else would you tell such mundane stories and put such mundane characters on the screen if because you these to kind say, of people they don't get to see themselves up on screen yeah and and you know joe swanberg might say well you know i i'm just showing my my own world the, mm-hmm. the milieu that i live in trying to summarize up that milieu like say woody allen does for his milieu but woody allen puts jokes in his movies and it's like it's like someone at, at a party just talking about themselves and it's like i don't fucking care like why are you talking about your boring life yeah <laughs> and i think that's the issue that i have with joe swanberg while a movie like lynn shelton's hump day they get bunched together because they're shot on like cheap digital video and it's all handheld mm-hmm. and there's that improv feel but like I think thematically they are mm-hmm. as far as you can get sure. between both of them I mean all these people sort of benefited from their proximity to each other because mm-hmm. because they were close to each other you know as much as they say oh uh, don't call us Mumblecore oh we're so different yeah don't call us Mumblecore even though that we're all making movies together and all starring and something like Hannah Takes the Stairs yeah and you know they used film festivals like South by Southwest mm-hmm. as these areas to not only network but to, uh, you know, show their movies, uh, tub thump, uh, you know, <laughs> <Tub thump. laughs> uh, create, you know, create hype for themselves. Yeah. Um, well, these were movies that other than film festivals didn't really have an audience. Right. Because like it was, they existed only for film festivals. And Netflix. Yeah. In the early days. In they- the early days <laughs> where they're like, oh, what's this? And like any transition they've tried to make 
into other directions. Like Mark Duplass, they directed that. What was it called? It was like Jeff something. Who lives at home. Yeah, Jeff who lives John at home. John C. Riley. yeah. No, that you're thinking of Cyrus. Oh, I am thinking of Cyrus. What was Jeff who lives at home? It was, yeah, it was a movie that starred Jason Segel as a guy going through kind of like a midlife crisis. But it had that kind of like mumblecore aesthetic, but with like real cameras and real actors. And that like never took off for him. I genuinely cannot remember if I've seen Jeff who lives at home. <laughs> I bet you have. You know, I remember hearing an interview with, Mark Duplass, where he said something like, it might have been on the Mark Maron podcast, mm-hmm. in fact, where he said something like, I think the story of your movie should be stock. It should be a very typical story, but what you do within that stock can be creative. No, because you forget what the movie is. I resented hearing that. And like, I guess there is. I, like, were you he, resenting because you were listening to the Mark Maron podcast back in the day? Oh, he, well, let, yeah. let me tell you about my cat Boomer. It's like, shut up, Mark. <laughs> Skip 30 seconds, scared 30 seconds. But I did kind of resent somebody who like made it a, like a principle of their craft that they're just going to stick within these, the, you know, the, the these stock confines. That sounds like, uh, like a guy who figured out a system that nobody else understands. <laughs> it's like, okay, so I guess you're like a big executive at a studio that you're going to do just stock stories and like sprinkle the fun stuff on top of it. Mark Duplass, uh, by the way, has also transitioned to a career as a surprisingly successful actor. I like Mark Duplass as an actor. I used to watch the show that he did with all his like Bumblecore buddies, The League, that was about Mm. like a football league, Mm. I think, because like Nick Kroll was in it. And that show was very funny. And he was in Zero Dark Thirty. (laughs) Oh yeah, well, everyone was in Zero Dark Thirty. Even Scott Adkins was in Zero Dark Thirty. (laughs) But I think you just look at Mark Duplass's attempt to make a career of like bringing his style to the I don't want to say the big leagues but like mm. the the films that have more money behind them and finding it like it doesn't work mm. and like he hasn't tried to continue doing that. I think a lot of the Mumblecore movies, you know, they benefit from the authenticity of mm. their creation. Well, I like I can think of films that use and I don't want to say Mumblecore style because then you're just going back to like John Cassavetes but like The Color Wheel like we talked about mm. is from all intents and purposes, a Mumblecore film with jokes and fun and it's moving quickly. Mm-hmm. Or even something like Listen Up, Philip, that mm-hmm. like you could qualify that as a Mumblecore film if you wanted to. It's it's sort of a, a follows in the uh, yeah. path of set, that set, set forward. But like it's trying to do something else with it. Did you ever see Frownland? No, I never saw Frownland. Oh, it's, very, it's very funny. It, kind of like Daddy Long Legs. Mm. Something that's, you know, kind of a DIY movie, but made with just extreme characters. I wonder if it's just like the lack of effort is something that like bugs me. And I'm sure they could argue like, oh, we put lots of effort. And then I would reply with, did you? <laughs> because it feels like you just kind of like barf mm. this out. And I understand that you could say that there's immediacy to that, but it's also mm. very narcissistic and boring. So Mumblecore is a movement that I very much think about. Like, movement. <laughs> Not like it's the civil rights movement or something. <laughs> like the French New Wave. Mumblecore is a... The Mumblecore Wave. Is a branding exercise mm. that I definitely think about in the past tense. Yes. Um, I do too. But it was, it was a way station. It was something that... Uh, showed that this sort of thing can happen and find an audience no matter how minuscule. Uh, and it led to films like Impossible Horror. <laughs> Impossible Horror! Which was yeah. also shot largely in your apartment. Yes, it was. The, the true mumblecore film of our time. And you know what? I like Impossible Horror so much more than all of the <laughs> Joe Swanberg films. Yeah. I mean, it took us much longer and we barely got into any film festival, so obviously one of them is doing it wrong. <laughs> 
and somebody is doing it right. Uh, Anna Kendrick will not return my calls, but I'll keep trying. Uh, I, I do think it's interesting, though, that someone like Andrew uh, Bajalski did go on and evolve his style. Like, mm-hmm. with computer chess, he tried something completely different. He did that comedy with Guy Pierce. I don't remember what it was called. And he did Support the Girls that came out in 2018, which I saw and loved. So that's like someone taking the building blocks and kind of going somewhere else and with it. And not everybody could do that. Do we have any letters? We do have some letters. Our first one is from Michael Wong, and it's entitled Forgotten Hong Kong Classics. <gasps> famous uh, Hong Kong actor Michael Wong? No, unfortunately it is not. It goes, I recently watched Frankie Chan's Outlaw Brothers and was floored by it. The classic blend of fast-paced action, Hong Kong comedy on the right side of annoying, and a score that is mostly the backing track to Mariah Carey's fantasy five years before that song came out made for a thrilling ride. It sent me down a rabbit hole of scouring eBay for other Frankie Chan, Yukari Oshima movies. My question is, what are your favorite forgotten Hong Kong action movies? Ones not starring big names like Jackie, Sammo, Yung Bao, Chiang Fat, Michelle Yeoh, etc. Well, one that comes to mind for me uh, is a film from 1994 by Kirk Wong called Organized Crime and Triad Bureau. And it's, you know, a cat and mouse game uh, between a triad boss and the head of the Triad Organized Crime Bureau of the title. I don't exactly remember the plot because it's a movie that's full of like scenes that you remember. Mm. Uh, notably rolling down the hill, firing machine guns at each other. Or there's a scene where there's like a shootout in a hospital where there's an open heart surgery being performed or <laughs> yeah. something like that. And, you know, one of the things I love about that movie that I think like really epitomizes Hong Kong action movies in the 80s and 90s is it really feels like just guerrilla style down and dirty. We're going out in the streets. Yeah, we don't have permits. We're crazy just shooting. action movie. And like, really the mumble core of their day. And like, uh, you know, in fact, I, I saw that movie at the Hong Kong-a-thon at the Anthology Film Archives that year mm-hmm. that Grady Hendrix runs. And, you know, when you see six of these movies back-to-back, it's like you get a different feel for Hong Kong. Like, Hong Kong, it, it definitely feels like this place where film crews were just running around with a camera, and it's like this living ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that comes to mind is also one that Grady Hendrix played at one of his Hong kong thong things. But unlike Will, I can't afford to go to New York, so mm-hmm. I watched it at home after somebody told me the titles that played, is a Simon Yam film called Day Without a Policeman. And it's about uh, Simon Yam is on an island, and suddenly a bunch of terrorists show up, and he has to protect uh, these innocent people while these terrorists try to brutally murder them. It is a Category 3 film, which is like an X rating in Hong Kong, so I should warn anyone who's like, hey, let's get all my friends together and have a party, but it does have that energy anything goes kind of feel to these movies that is great, and it's one that people don't really talk about because Simon Yam made a thousand movies, a lot of them Category 3 films, and they fall through the uh, cracks a lot, but this one is one that's worth checking out. I just want to say that I just on the weekend watched uh, a kung fu movie that I really enjoyed called The Master Strikes mm-hmm. from 1980. It's a drunken, <laughs> recommended by Justin DeClue. <laughs> it's a drunken master clone. It was directed by Cao Pao Shu, who is actually uh, a female director, mm-hmm. one of the few female directors of Hong Kong action She movies. was a uh, Shaw Brothers star, and that's how she got the opportunity to start her own film production studio to make her own movies. And it, the action choreography was by the future director of the Chinese Ghost Story series and lots of other films uh his name is escaping Chin right Tung. yes he stars in the film 
him and the other action choreographer, Tony Lung Si Hung, mm. who would go on to direct classic films like Super Fights. And uh, Casanova Wong, the super kicker. Mm-hmm. Is, is in, in the it, movie. Of I mean, the pl- I, I'm not... It doesn't matter what the I'm plot is. The plot, but <laughs> what matters is that the action scenes in this movie are unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Just... just uh, Acrobatic, backflips, all over the place. I, I was in heaven watching it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing about kung fu films, or even like crime films, is that they kind of like blend in your mind to the yeah. point that... Oh, thank God for stuff like Letterboxd that I can go, did I see this movie? <laughs> and then I can go check. Yeah. But, you know, something else about, like, little scene Hong Kong movies is that I would scrounge, I, I would read from cover to cover books like Asian Cult Cinema by Thomas Wisner. And these movies that I thought everybody knew, I look on Letterboxd and, like, no one's reviewed. Oh, man, I have that exact <laughs> same experience. Where I was like, I thought that just everybody knew this film. But yeah. nope, that is not the case. There's always stuff to discover I'm the second review of The Master Strikes on Letterboxd. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. So thank you very much, Michael Wong. Sadly, not the real Michael Wong, who runs uh, the, uh, I think it's just Michael Wong GIFs on Twitter, which is an inside joke for only the hardest core uh, Hong Kong fans, <laughs> and who Peter Koplowski reached out to me and said, are you the one running this account when he sat outside? <laughs> and I said, no, that's way too much work for something uh, that I would do. So the next letter is from Elmer McKinga, and it goes, Dear Justin and Will, Will and Justin, first of all, Looking forward to Matthew Kumar's letter in response to all your Japanese mispronunciations. Didn't get one? Probably won't. Secondly, I was surprised to hear about the boom in Miyazaki screenings in Toronto, since this is happening in Amsterdam as well. It seems like every theater over here is doing Ghibli retrospective and reruns of Call Me By Your Name and Satoshi Kong's Paprika. Most of them have completely meaningless introductions that are basically just summarized Wikipedia pages. Paprika, weird movie, huh? And all of them sell out, of course. I'm slightly disappointed no theaters see this as a chance to explore the deeper cuts of, say, LGBT uh, cinema and anime and just keeps giving everybody what they've already seen. You've so far done a great job of combining the niche with the normal, so is there any chance of you discussing any of these topics? Also, I love the possible horror and I'm greatly looking forward to the day the important Cinema Club Journal arrives in my mail. With kind regards, Elmer. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, checking out Impossible Horror and ordering the important Cinema Club Journal. The thing about anime is I am not even close to an expert. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to, like, LGBTQ anime. I'm interested, though. I am, too. It is very tricky sometimes to do these subjects that are very outside our frame of reference. Especially if they have, like, super fans, which this stuff has. Yeah, it's a balance between wanting to do justice to films and expressions from marginalized groups, but also not wanting to, like colonize it and yeah. uh, pretend that we're experts on it. Yeah, know? or to try to speak it in some authoritative form, but mm. also not like look at it from our completely culturally ignorant because we don't know any better uh, perspective. Mm. And mm. like we've kind of like stepped around those subjects or tried our best like when we did Bollywood, which we're not an expert at, but uh. we tried our best and we've done like a bunch of stuff since then. It's probably better to try and fail than, than to not, not try, try at all, yeah. 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 Even though people will still call you out for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, anime especially is like something that is kind of undiscovered territory for me. Like, I don't know all the kind of permutations it takes, but like we mostly talk about films and like a lot. I think of the most interesting stuff is like series Mm -hmm. or mini series or OVAs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I would really need someone to like take my hand and like guide me through it. And the reason that these cinemas don't play these weird movies is that unless they are funded by grants of some sort, they need people to come in. And if you play movies that nobody knows, nobody comes. Miyazaki, take, money take, in the bank. Listen, take it from me, who's tried my best to play, who's spent five years of my life <laughs> playing movies that people don't know that are great. 
Nobody comes. I so, come. Yeah, Will comes. I haven't seen you in a while, Will. Ah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But, like, it's tough. And you, there's this idea in your mind that, like, well, if I start playing, good, like, they have to come. But because these kind of, like, Cinematech screenings, they're often just, like, one-offs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't get to run for a week and people to discover it. It's tough to do this kind of stuff. Here's what I think. Uh, rent a room at your local library. Mm-hmm. Start your... A deep cut anime series because there is a community there is a community that'll come out mm-hmm. and that are already like their feet are already a little bit wet and they want to discover more and they want to see like-minded people who, mm-hmm. who also like this stuff it's just you know don't expect to sell out a 400 seat cinema called the royal cinema because it's not going to happen you're not going to get enough people huh. <sighs> all right but poor yeah. justin <laughs> just to do that that would be great uh, more film society should start and if you want to start one hmm maybe you should get the important cinema club journal because there may be an article called how to start a film club in it <laughs> on uh, amazon but, right now yeah folks. i was gonna say amazon.de i guess if you're in amsterdam or around there so thank you again uh, very much for the letter elmer and this week on our patreon we talk about the original mumblecore rob reiner's when harry met sally i had never seen it before you had, what you didn't even say that on the episode. No, I didn't know that. I had never seen When Harry Met Sally. Because you were like, normie fair, not interested, right? I, guess. I would have thought it was your big Billy Crystal fandom. Yeah. You've got that little shrine in your apartment. <laughs> I guess I just never dated anyone who liked it. So never, oh, never geez. saw it. <laughs> Jeez. I actually checked it out by myself because I was like, oh, this is a movie people talk about. I like romantic comedy. Let's check it out. You're more of like a tough skin kind of guy. You're like action like movie. Two-fisted yeah. entertainments. Yeah, exactly. No girls allowed. <laughs> so um, it's $5 a month to listen to that episode. You get four exclusive episodes every month and you can become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And what are we doing next week, Will? So I don't want this necessarily to become the ambulance chasing podcast. Yeah. Where, you know, anytime somebody dies, we do an mm-hmm. episode. But, you know, some interesting people have been passing away lately. <laughs> somebody who died this week is Carolee Schneeman, who was a very well-regarded artist and experimental filmmaker. Her most famous art piece is her uh, scroll performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, which It came out of an orifice. Just look that up. And her most famous experimental film was Fuses, mm-hmm. which if you've taken an experimental cinema class, you've probably seen it. Never even heard her name before. You brought it up. So uh, I'm jumping in. Speaking of things that I don't know anything about. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it'll be fun. I'm interested in exploring her. Mm-hmm. So uh, that'll be next week. And until then, I'm Justin Clue. I'm Will Slough. Thanks for listening. I remember a couple of years ago when Megan Ellison of Annapurna Pictures came on the scene and she was doing things like investing in Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, which Mm. you'll recall had been canceled before. Yeah, because it was like too dicey because everybody was talking about it as a Scientology movie. And there was this kind of feeling where it's like, okay, big studios aren't making serious or halfway serious movies anymore. And it's like... Well, okay, at least we have this billionaire heiress who mm-hmm. will uh, throw away some of her money into this. Like, if this is all we've got, I'll mm. take it. But now the tables have turned and Variety just wrote an article called Can Megan Ellison Reverse Course on Annapurna's Financial Troubles? And there's a photo of Megan Ellison everything around her is on fire and she's holding a uh, candle lighter or I guess it's technically a barbecue lighter to a stack of dollar bills so first of all I don't know anything about business so, uh, maybe she's got outside investors now probably uh, uh, yeah maybe and I, the other I, thing is 
Who fucking cares? I think if she wants to keep burning her money, we should we should let her and we should encourage. But it. she's not burning her money. She's obviously investing in stuff that she cares about. I I think I remember hearing that it's like you know her billionaire father or yes. something was starting to take a look at the books now. Basically, what ended up happening was that like a handful of films. And maybe someone will be like, mm, well, excuse me, it was actually more than a handful. Lost a lot of money. Like the Sister Brothers came out, didn't make any kind of splash. Even something like The Master didn't make its budget back. And they just keep kept investing in this stuff. Well, there was a period there when there was stuff like Silver Linings Playbook mm-hmm. and Zero Dark Thirty, movies that made quite a bit of money. But I remember seeing that if Beale Street could talk, lost money because it was very badly handled, I think. Yeah, it was opened so oddly like it didn't go wide it opened very small you didn't hear anything about it and then like months later it's still playing in theaters because it just opened and also vice lost some money Mm -hmm. Uh, destroyer i'm looking at what came out last year oh uh annapurna pictures put money in creed 2 and they also put good taste also put money in death wish the eli roth classic (laughs) anyway so what what did the article say do you remember uh how she's gonna turn it around well i mean i could get into that but i could also get into the fact that it doesn't matter right. because the investment, specifically her father, is a billionaire. Mm-hmm. So if you lose a bunch of millions of dollars, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it, it doesn't mean anything Why, other than yeah. the fact that a, a board of directors is like, mm, we can't keep losing money, even though we essentially have unlimited funds. You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars <laughs> last year. I plan to lose a million dollars next year and the next year. Why at the rate of a million dollars a year? I'll have to close this place in. 60 years <laughs> exactly but because life is boring and people want to make drama and tell a story they have to be like oh she's just wasting all of this money you know what i hope she wastes more money i do too yeah like if she was she shouldn't even have a billion dollars so uh, no nobody have should have it, a yeah. billion dollars she's gonna have it so know. if she's gonna have it she might as well like invest it in projects that she's passionate about and like because i think they diversified into video games mm-hmm. and stuff like that and that's also just giving money directly to the creators to make these projects mm-hmm. and there's something kind of noble about this idea of like you know she didn't make those billions of dollars her father did her father's workers did anyway. <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man will stood up when he did that and he threw the mic up into the air <laughs> get the fuck out of here and um uh you know uh, just go do some research on a father if you will he doesn't seem like a very nice man yeah and you know, i hope he doesn't put a stop to this no like I... fucking old man potter <laughs> yeah you know? exactly I th- fucking scrooge mcduck drowning in his pool of money yeah you know he needs to die quickly yeah and just let her spend the rest she could away. not spend all that money fritter in her entire away. lifetime the rest of the fortune again it's not burning it's not frittering because she's investing it in things that she cares about and i think that's what matters because like you know you look at box office numbers you look how much movies make it it doesn't mean anything all this money is just like invisible in the air guess what everybody dies and it doesn't matter (laughs) how much money you have because you're still miserable did you see that article about (laughs) you know where i'm going with this the billionaire who died getting a penis enlargement oh loved it (laughs) That is the greatest. It's like, you know, his penis was really his rosebud, wasn't it? (laughs) I hope it died like it was too big. If we can get more billionaires to to have penis enlargement (laughs) surgeries. Do you think it'll be like a dare that like other billionaires were like, maybe he died, but I'll get the good one. Like, I'll get the, the, the better penis enlargement and they're all still dying. Yeah, it's like climbing Mount Everest.